Hello, and welcome to the Physical Preparation Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Robertson, and I'll be joined on the line later today by world-renowned tendon expert, Dr. Keith Barr. Now, before we jump into this week's show, I want to give you uh, a little overview of what's new and noteworthy in my life. Uh, This past weekend was a lot of fun. My in-laws, my mother-in-law to be exact, was having a minor eye surgery this week of actual Thanksgiving. So weekend prior to, we decided to do Italian Thanksgiving, which in all fairness, I wasn't super jazzed about. Uh, You pick like the most inflammatory foods possible for my system when you're thinking dairy and wheats and all of those things. But man, we rolled with it. So we had pizza, lasagna. My wife made this bomb, diggity, amazing pumpkin cake even better than pumpkin pie, if that's imaginable. So that was a lot of fun. Had Italian Thanksgiving. Kiddos and I are continuing to plow our way through the first eight episodes of the Star Wars saga. So we watched episode five, Empire Strikes Back, this past weekend. And man, every time I watch that movie, I'm just reminded how amazing it is. Like everything from the acting to the music to... Just the interactions between the characters and the humor, such a well-done movie. And what's mind-blowing, I was doing a, a little research on it the other day. I wanted to see how long it was, and you know, the Wikipedia page comes up, and they spent $18 million, just marinate on this for a second, $18 million to make that movie, and they grossed $538 million at the box office. That's in the 70s. I mean, it's just mind-blowing to think about that, or early 80s, and to think that then they went on and think about all the money they've made since then on that franchise. So one of my favorites, and extending the Star Wars franchise, also getting caught up in The Mandalorian. I've watched uh, the first three episodes up to this point and really enjoying that. Again, you just never know. I feel like sometimes when they try and do spinoff stuff, with a lot of these these great franchises that can be hit or miss. But man, that show's really well done. Really enjoying that so far. Uh, one other thing I'm pretty jazzed about, if you are not on my newsletter list, and if you don't go to the webpage frequently, you should, because I am starting a new thing. Basically, Bill and I joining forces on our videos. And so this Monday, I put up a videos of the week. So if you remember way back in the day, My boy, Ben Bruno, used to do like his favorite videos of the week, and it'd be like 40 or 50 video clips. Well, I'm just kind of doing that now that's like a synopsis of what Bill and I have put out during the last week, because I'd like to think we're putting out a lot of really good video content, Bill even more so than me. I mean, this guy is prolific, to say the least, in his video dropping over the past couple days and couple weeks. So if you miss that, be sure either get on the newsletter list would be your smart move, or at the very least, make sure you're hitting the uh, the RTS website once a week because I'm going to do my best to get some great video content out there each and every week. So that's kind of last week. What I'm excited about this week, again, this is going to be passed by the time you hear it, but one thing that we've done the last three years is host a charity boot camp at IFAST on Thanksgiving Day. And does a lot of good things. I mean, number one, you know you're going to overeat, and there's no shame in that. You should. You should enjoy the food. You should enjoy your friends and your family. But in general, you feel a little bit better about yourself and less guilty eating a massive meal if you've had a good workout. So the last three years now, we have done a charity boot camp. All the proceeds go to a local charity called the Patachu Foundation, and it basically feeds food-insecure children 
really healthy meals after school. So if you know anything about me and my family, outside of pizza movie night, we're very health conscious when it comes to our nutrition. We eat very well. My wife's a dietitian, so we want other kids to have that opportunity. We know a lot of kids don't. They don't know when their next meal is coming. They don't know about the quality of that meal. And frankly, they probably don't care, right? They're just happy to eat something. So that's why it's been such an honor and a privilege to work with the Patichu Foundation because I'm a huge believer in what they do. And, you know, hopefully we go out and, and raise a bunch, a bunch of money for them again this year. And all the people that attend get a great workout in the process. So we got the charity boot camp. That afternoon, we're going to do real Thanksgiving, right? None of this Italian pizza and lasagna stuff. It was great, but uh, I think a traditional Thanksgiving meal is is invaluable in your life. So we're going to do it all. We're going to do turkey, mashed potatoes, green bean casserole, stuffing, and it's going to be legit. So definitely looking forward to that. Looking forward to just some downtime. Uh, I may have to work a little bit Friday, but even if I do, it's going to be a very, very, very short day because I want to have as much time with the kiddos over the next four to five days as possible. So that's going to give us time for projects around the house, project domestication, as I like to call it. And, you know, about once a month, we have to go through a weekend like this. A couple weeks ago, it was cleaning out the garage, getting it ready and prep for winter. This week, we got to put up Christmas decorations. That's like a family ritual. We do that every Friday after Thanksgiving. So we got that to look forward to. Kendall wants to clean up and reorganize her room. I'm looking at my den and I'm getting overwhelmed by just the sheer volume of stuff, books and lights and all kinds of stuff that I got going on in here. So if you follow me on the gram, you'll notice a couple weeks ago, I did the uh, Marie Kondo, KonMari method, whatever it's called in my upstairs closet. And it looks amazing. Like it is so good to feel that, like just strip down, all I have is like stuff that I actually need and will wear. So my next project is to do that in our den because I'm looking and man, I have some amazing books. Like I am really proud of the library, but there's also a lot of books that like serve their purpose and I want them to move on. So that is the week in a nutshell. It's what I'm excited about. Um, hopefully if you're listening to this shortly after Thanksgiving, you had an amazing time, great food, great times with family and friends. And uh, yeah, man, I hope you took a little bit of time, regardless of whether you do the actual Thanksgiving holiday and meal or not. I hope you take some time to just be grateful for all the blessings, all the amazing things that you have going on in your life. Even if you're down, even if you're going through a rough patch, you know, if you're listening to this show, chances are you got a lot of good things going on in your life. And it's really important to take pause and just be thankful of what you have going on, the amazing people you have in your life. And uh, yeah, just, you know, recognizing that we've all got it pretty darn good these days. So, That is enough for me. Quick break, and then we're going to jump into this awesome, awesome show with Dr. Keith Barr. It seems like every day I talk to a young trainer or coach who is frustrated. Maybe they're frustrated with the results they're getting. Maybe they're frustrated because they don't have trusted resources to learn from. And maybe they're frustrated because they simply don't have enough clients and wonder how long they'll be able to stay in the industry. So if that sounds anything like you, I've got something that I know will help. My Complete Coach Certification was created for trainers and coaches just like you, who are serious about the results they get and who know that becoming a better coach can directly translate to a bigger bottom line. This certification is going to take the last 20 years of my life's work and put it all into one massive course. In it, you'll learn 
how to use the R7 system to create seamless, integrated, and efficient programs for clients and athletes of all shapes and sizes. How to create the culture, environment, and relationships with everyone you train so you can get the absolute best results. And the exact progressions, regressions, and coaching cues I use in the gym. From squatting and deadlifting to pressing and pulling and everything in between. Of course, there's a ton more that I cover, but that should give you a pretty good idea of what the cert is all about. Now here's the thing, spots for the certification will only open twice per year for a limited time only. If you're interested in learning more, my next cert will launch in March of 2020, and if you join my free insiders list, you'll be able to save $200 when it opens. To get on the insiders list, just head over to completecoachcertification.com. Again, completecoachcertification.com, and then stay tuned for emails in the coming weeks. Thanks so much for your support, and I hope you'll pick up a copy of the Complete Coach Certification when it launches. Dr. Keith Barr is a professor at UC Davis and world-renowned tendon training researcher and expert. He is currently the head of the Functional Molecular Biology Lab at the University of California, Davis. Over the last 15 years, Dr. Barr has worked with professional athletes across numerous sports, including soccer in the English Premier League, the National Football League, and USA Track and Field. Prior to his time at UC Davis, he also spent time in the trenches as an assistant strength coach with the University of Michigan football team. In this show, Dr. Barr and I take a deep dive into the world of tendons. We start by breaking down what makes a tendon fundamentally different from a muscle, and then take that into performance training, nutrition, and anything else you can think of to help keep your tendons healthy for a lifetime. This is a really fascinating show, and I know you're going to love it. But enough for me. Let's do this. Dr. Barman, thank you so much for coming on the show here today. I know you've got a ton going on, so I uh, appreciate you doing that. Could you start by just telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. So my name is Keith Barr. I'm a, I'm a professor at the University of California, Davis. I've had a laboratory here for about 10 years. And before that, I had a laboratory in, in Scotland in a small place called Dundee for five years before that. And so we've been studying basically how the musculoskeletal system functions. So really what we study is how, how what we do and what we eat affects how our, how our muscles grow, how our tendons and ligaments respond to the stresses of exercise. That's awesome, man. And what, what originally got you interested in all this or how did you get your start in this world? Yeah, so I was a, I'm like most people in the field, I was a mediocre athlete myself. <laughs> yes. um, and so you're always trying to figure out why you're mediocre in <laughs> relation to other people. And so when I was at the University of Michigan doing my undergraduate degree, I got into strength and conditioning. I was working in the in strength and conditioning with the, with the Michigan football team there with uh, one of the kind of great strength and conditioning coaches at the time, a guy named Mike Gittleson. Mm -hmm. And so basically at that time I was, I was trying to figure out whether I wanted to go into the strength and conditioning itself or whether I wanted to do something else. And, and really what I was drawn to is this idea of, of understanding why it was that some of the people that we put onto a program got really big and strong and other people didn't really change very much. They, right. they maybe were a little bit bigger and they were, they were getting stronger, but they didn't seem to adapt in the same way. And so I was really curious as to how, how our bodies adapt and what were the, what were the basic things that allowed our bodies to, to adapt to 
our nutrition, our loading, how old we are. Yeah. What are the things that drive those those adaptations throughout our throughout our lives, basically? That's awesome. So tell me, how do you go from a strength and conditioning internship or strength and conditioning position with Michigan football to where you're at now? Like, what was that career path like to get you to what you're doing today? Yeah. So so part of the big thing was that I was fortunate enough to, you know, come from a background where I. I had the the wherewithal to to do a bunch of volunteering. So the internship with strength and conditioning was one thing, but I was also doing an internship in a laboratory on campus. And so so I was doing those internships and the the guy that I was doing my internship, he he decided to take a position at Berkeley and then you know, when I was graduating, I was looking at things to do as to whether I wanted to go to medical school, whether I wanted to go into strength and conditioning. I was drawn to this idea of, of working with those kind of experimental things that I got a chance to work in that laboratory and see how it worked. And so the guy who was the, the leader of that lab, a guy named Tim White, who's now the president of the Cal State University system, he was at Berkeley. And I decided to, in the end, to go to Berkeley and do a master's degree. And one of the PhD students that I was working with in the laboratory when I was an undergraduate she went away to Australia, came back and started her own laboratory at the University of Illinois in Chicago. And after I finished my master's, I ended up actually going back and working with her because she had been spending time doing, you know, trying to learn molecular biology. And I figured that this was a way that I could learn molecular biology in relation to muscle and, you know, start to develop that. And so, so that's what I did. I went through those two processes and finished my PhD. And at that time, you know, everybody at the end of their PhD is pretty much drained and, and <laughs> yeah. don't know whether they want to keep going. So <laughs> I basically followed my wife who was doing her, who started her law degree at, at Washington University in St. Louis. And I went down there and I went to a seminar that was there that was being held by a guy named uh, John Halsey, who was kind of the father of, of exercise physiology in the United States. And I started asking a bunch of questions of the seminar speaker. And at the end of the seminar, Halsey walked up to me and said, who the hell are you? And then when I explained who I was, he said, what are you doing here? And then when I explained I was there with my wife, he said, you need to come work in my laboratory. And <laughs> so awesome. I, I basically got a job just by going to the seminar. And then from there, you just continue to, to develop a, as a scientist. I went from my PhD where I had discovered kind of a molecular mechanism underlying why muscle grows in response to exercise. And then with Halsey, I took those same technical skills that I developed and, and discovered the this one gene that's upregulated by endurance exercise that drives most of the endurance response, the increase in, in fat oxidation in, in, in blood vessels to the muscle, all of those things that you think of as endurance adaptations. Right. So so I was pretty fortunate at the time. It was a good time to 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 be a junior scientist and, and learn a bunch of things. Mm -hmm. But yeah, we tried to and just continue to develop and, and follow my curiosity wherever it took me. I love it, man. So one thing I would love to really just kind of deep dive into with you here today is tendons. And I know mm -hmm. this is something you've spent a lot of time on, and I'd like to start just very rudimentary to start. What makes a tendon morphologically different from a muscle? Okay, so so it's a good question. And 
you know, for most of us who started as, as muscle physiologists, we kind of just would always just throw away the tendon because it was just a piece of stuff that you couldn't really break down at all. Yes. And over the years, what I've come to learn is that, is that really what it is, is that a, a tendon goes from bone to bone. Yeah. And in the middle, it expands. And in the middle, it has a muscle. Huh. So what, what happens is you have a tendon that goes in and it's this dense connective tissue, this dense collagen matrix. And it's all directionally oriented along the line of force. Mm -hmm. And then when it gets into the muscle, it kind of spreads out. And in the little areas where it spreads out, it becomes less dense. It's, it's almost as if you inflated a balloon. Right. And inside the balloon, you put all of this muscle tissue, this contractile tissue, these motors that could produce force. Mm -hmm. And what the connective tissue is now doing within the muscle is, is different than it's what it's doing in the tendon. But it's all connected. Okay. And then it's going to go all the way through the muscle and it's going to reconnect on the other end. And so functionally, a tendon, the really big difference is that both of them have a connective tissue matrix that's made up predominantly of collagen. The difference is that a tendon is 90%, 80, 80% yeah, collagen. So there's not much else in there. Right. Whereas a muscle is only about 5% collagen. Mm -hmm. And what you have that's different is you have these huge these huge stores of motor protein, the, the myosins that are going to be able to allow that muscle to produce force. And so really what you can think of it is as a single unit, this muscle tendon unit that goes, that attaches to a bone and then it goes up and into this muscle and it comes back down into another tendon at the other end. And it, when it's working perfectly, the, the motor proteins within the muscle as soon as they begin to, to pull towards each other, to shorten, all of that load is then transmitted through this extracellular matrix down to the tendon so that it can produce force. And in fact, 80 or more percent of the force that those little motor proteins are producing is transmitted laterally through this extracellular matrix down to the tendon in order for that muscle tendon unit to function properly. Hmm. That's awesome, man. So it's funny because I was listening to you on the Just Fly Performance podcast a while back, and you were obviously talking about tendons there as well. But one thing that I was really interested in was you mentioned that the tendon itself is actually different from start to finish. So could you expand on that just a little bit? Sure. So if we go back to this idea that a tendon starts at a bone and then it expands out into a muscle and it contracts back into a tendon and then goes back to a bone. So when you're close to the bone, the bone is really, really stiff. Yes. And when you're close to that bone, the tendon is, is small. All of the co collagen is directionally oriented. And as a result of those two things, that it's densely packed, it's organized, and it's all directionally or organized in one direction, it's quite stiff. As it goes up towards the muscle, the muscle is going to be much bigger. So it's going to have to expand. So the things that determine the stiffness of the tendon are how much collagen is there, what direction the collagen is in, and that's really important. Mm -hmm. And the last thing is how much crosslinks or how many crosslinks there are between the collagen molecules, the collagen fascicles, all of these different these different higher this different hierarchy of collagen. And so what you do is as you get closer to the muscle the tendon spreads out, which means that it's not directionally oriented any, as directionally oriented anymore. And so what that does is that means that as you pull on it, what happens is you have to kind of compress it. So it, it's going to pull and it's going to, the tendon's collagen is going to get closer together. 
And because it's getting closer together, that's going to mean that it's not as stiff as the part where it's already closely packed. And so that's one thing that as you go towards the muscle, you're going to have this geometry that means that it's going to be less stiff Mm -hmm. anyways. And then there's another thing that happens. And as you get close to the muscle, what happens is the muscle fibers actually pull on the collagen molecules, but they don't pull on them all together at once. And so a muscle fiber is going to pull on some collagen more than the other. And what you're going to get is you're going to get shear forces or friction, or you're going to get sliding. Sure. And as you get sliding, it's like taking a Band-Aid off of, a, of a, somebody who's got a lot of hair on their skin. What you're doing is you're sliding that Band-Aid off. And when you do that, you're going to break the hairs that attach those, those two things. And you're going to pull all the hairs out. That's kind of the same thing that happens as you slide these collagen molecules. You start breaking these little links between them, these cross links. And the cross links make make the collagen in the tendon stiffer. Hmm. So there's two things that cause the tendon to become less stiff as it goes towards the muscle. The first one is that you now have a big muscle, so there's less directional orientation of the collagen. So that's one thing. And the second thing is that you get fewer of these crosslinks because when our muscles contract, it's causing shear forces that break the crosslinks. And so as a result of those two things, what you have is you have a a less stiff end of the tendon close to the muscle and a more stiff end of the tendon close to the bone. And it's absolutely essential to the function of the tissue because if you change that at all, if you make it so that you've got greater stiffness at the muscle end of the tendon, your performance is going to improve a little bit, but more than that, what's going to happen is you're going to put the muscle that's attached to that tendon at a risk of injury. Because there's a simple, a simple idea is that if the tendon is, is less stiff at its muscle end, what it's going to do is it's going to stretch. And that stretching serves as a shock absorber. Yep. And so when the tendon is working properly, it's going to be a shock absorber for the whole muscle. And so that's really, really essential. So as we do things that are going to increase performance, what we're going to do is we're going to make that end of the tendon stiffer. And as we do things that are designed to improve health, we're going to do things that are going to make that a little bit less stiff. And so what you're doing with your training is you're modulating the stiffness of the muscle end of the tendon. I love that. That is so cool. So let's take that and talk about training. So for starters, how would you differentiate or distinguish training that is more focused on building the muscles, right? Or maybe more focused on building health, as you kind of described it, versus training that's more focused on building the tendon and building that power, that explosiveness. Okay. So so the simple thing here is that if we're going to, if we want to make a muscle bigger, the only thing we need to do is get to failure. Yeah. Okay. So, so what that means is that you're lifting a weight, whether it's a heavy weight or a light weight, doesn't matter. If you continue to lift that until you can't possibly lift it anymore, that's what we call momentary. That's what we call failure, positive failure. When you're doing that, that's going to be a great stimulus for the muscle to grow. As you're doing it, if you're doing it with a heavy weight, now you're lifting the heavy weight. And that heavy weight, because of the, the relationship between the force that our muscles create and the velocity at which they shorten, the heavier weight we lift, the slower we're going to move. And so when I'm lifting a heavy weight, I'm going to move more slowly. And that's going to be good for maintaining the tendon health. If I lift it to failure, what my last repetitions are, those are going to be super slow repetitions because we've all 
been lifting a weight and we're trying to get that last repetition and we're barely moving. (laughs) That is the slowest repetition that we're going to have is that repetition before failure. And so when you've got that heavy weight lifting to failure, what you're doing is you're actually decreasing the speed at which you're contracting the muscle and you're lifting a heavy weight. Those two things together are going to put a nice load across the muscle end of the tendon. We're going to get those shear forces. That's going to keep the tendon healthy because we're lifting the failure that's going to cause the muscle to grow and because we're lifting a heavy weight that that's going to cause the muscle to increase its strength so when we lift a heavy weight to failure what we're doing is we're maximizing muscle size and and strength and we're minimizing injury risk by improving the tendon quality as well okay if we're looking to strictly um, improve performance what you would want to do is you want to load the muscle differently You'd want to load the muscle tendon unit differently. And the way that you do that is, is through using maximum power work. And so max power work is performed using a low weight, 0 to 30% of your one rep maximum. And so when you do max power work, you're trying to go as fast as you can against a relatively light weight. So it's body weight or maybe a little bit above body weight. And so when you're doing that, what you're doing is you're loading the tendon differently. So you're not loading it slowly, which is allowing these collagen molecules to slide and to break crosslinks. You're loading it fast. And when we load our tendons fast, the collagen molecules work as sheets. And when we load them as sheets, you don't break crosslinks in there. And every time we exercise, we add new crosslinks. So what you're doing is you're not breaking old ones. You are making new ones. That tendon is getting stiffer the rate of force development is going to go up and our performance in things like jumping, throwing and and other things like that is going to improve slightly as well. And so, so you're trading off those two things and the, the, and then we know that your maximum power. So your jump height goes up, for example, but as you continue, if you're only training in that way, because you're not working against the load and you're not going to failure, you're going to lose strength and you're going to lose muscle mass over time. So you can only really train for max power for about two to three weeks to before you start losing absolute strength and your power comes down because the force your muscle produces is lower. Interesting. So in a perfect world, if you're, say, training an athlete, right, and an athlete that is maybe like us, you know, a little bit more on the mediocre side, not the most explosive, would you say that probably the best way to to get them started is to find this blend of you need to build some do some muscle building stuff early on to get you know the muscle tissue healthy and to build the muscle into the tendon and then layer you know periods of that more powerful or that more stiffness focused training on top to get kind of that ideal training effect absolutely there's a couple of papers uh by prue comrie i think her is her name and what she did is she showed that max power work improves improves power performance and then what she did is she took people who had been either weaker or stronger when they started max power and what she found is that the people who were stronger entering the max power work had an even greater effect of the power training so what we want to do is we want to build we want to build the engine first so you want to get big strong and healthy first and that's the core of what you would do. So, so if we were talking an endurance athlete, our base phase as a strength athlete, so base phase of an endurance athlete, go out and run lots and lots of miles, build your base. As a strength athlete, our base phase, what we're doing is we're lifting heavy and we're going to failure. We're building a big, strong muscle with a healthy tendon. And then what we're going to do is as we get closer and closer to performance, now we're going to start increasing the amount of, of 
faster loads that we're going to do, increase the work, increase the max power work that we're going to do. You also then take into account previous injury history. So if you're somebody who's never been injured before, you can do a lot more max power work than somebody who has a history of muscle pulls or tendon injuries or other things like that. Because what you're doing is you're, you're always playing with this balance between performance and injury. And so if you have somebody who is really quick and really explosive and, and produces a lot of power, they tend to be the people who get injured the most because they're stiff at the beginning. That's why they're, that's why they're quick. That's why they produce the most power. We're going to need to train them a little bit more with slower, heavier movements. If you've got somebody who has never had a muscle pull, never had a tendon injury, is a little bit kind of lumbering and a little bit slower through the movements, now what we're going to do is we're going to work them more on the max power stuff, and we're going to do just enough strength work to maintain the strength that they need in order to have the maximal power effect. I love it. I love it. So let's say someone is listening to this show. They don't necessarily want to become a tendon specialist or get a PhD in training tendons, but they want to create just a really sound training program that helps keep their athletes healthy. What key right. components do you need to kind of keep in that program over the long haul to see the, the health continue as they continue to develop their sport performance? Right. So, so again, it goes back to this, the core of what, what you should be doing is it, what people need to be doing is they need to be doing a, a, a heavy, slow lift. Yep. A lot of times what will happen is somebody will get injured. They'll do these Alfredson protocols where they're going to do slow eccentrics. Mm -hmm. The slow eccentric is fine. This, the, a heavy concentric has the same effect on tendon health because really what you're looking for is you're looking for the slow component. Really? And I can program that as a strength coach by simply increasing the load. So if I'm lifting heavy at least once a week, that's going to be the core of what I need in order to do my strength and in order to do my health. Gotcha. One to two times a week is going to be the core of what I want to have there. So if I've got an athlete who has got more of an injury history, I'm going to do maybe two to three times a week on the heavy slow, probably more like two. Yep. If I've got an athlete who doesn't have that history, I'm going to do one time a week, heavy, slow work. And then what I can do is I can layer onto that my practice, my, my training, my, and then some max power work as well. But you. you need to have that, you need to have that really heavy, slow lift at least once a week where that's going to be something that allows them to to really maintain their muscle size strength and prevent injury to the tendon yeah no i love that and that's so interesting because i feel like forever people were pushing eccentric work for tendon health and then people were pushing isometric work and so you're saying like all of those are viable as long as you're working heavy enough and that you're getting i don't want to say time under tension but you're working more towards the muscle failure end of the spectrum. Is that right? Yeah. So, so if you're healthy, any kind of heavy lift is going to be fine Okay. because most strength coaches think that they program volume and load. Yep. They think how many sets, how many reps, that's your volume. And what's the load that's that, how much are you lifting? Yeah. In fact, what, what all strength coaches are actually programming is velocity. Mm, yes. When we increase the load, we're going to decrease the velocity. Yeah. When we increase the repetitions, we're going to increase, we're going to decrease the velocity because the the later repetitions are going to be done slower. When we decrease the load, we're going to increase the velocity. So really what we're doing is we're, we're modulating velocity. So with, I have a healthy athlete, I'm going to lift them heavy because I want them to go slowly. Yeah. 
because the slow component is the important component for the tendon health. If I have an injured athlete, now I'm going to go even slower, which is the slowest form of contraction, which is the isometric, because what the isometric is going to allow you to do is it's going to allow you to slowly develop tension across the tendon. Gotcha. It's going to get the right stimulus to the cells to give them the signal to align the collagen the way that they should to fix the tendon. So, so really what I do is I program velocity. Yeah. I love that outlook. And that's something that we use with a lot of our, our higher level athletes. We use gym aware. That's not a plug or anything, but, right. but we use that. And, and so we look at it from a force production perspective or what physical quality are we training, but that's cool. I never really thought about it, about how that's going to impact the quality of the tendon as well. Absolutely. And that's really what these things, tendos or gym aware or any of these things that are measuring velocity of the bar. Yeah. They're, they're really designed because, okay, we want to get the, that max power work. We want to go as fast as we can. Sure. But the important thing is, again, you're decreasing load on the bar yeah. to allow that max power performance. Now, what you're going to then do is you also need to do the other side of it, which is to do the heavy slow in order to maintain the health of the system. Yeah. And really what, what a lot of performance coaches do is they shift it to one side and they're always doing that one side. They're always doing the performance-based movements and the result is their athletes are become very fragile. Yes. They pull muscles, they, they have these issues continuously. Okay, well, okay, so this leads perfectly into my next question and I realize it's loaded and I'm gonna apologize now because I'm interested in your thoughts on this, but it feels like we're seeing more and more major tendon ruptures in sports, whether it's an Achilles tendon, a patellar tendon. Is this something that you would, I mean, you look at the research, is that something you're seeing as well? And if so, why do you think that's the case? So I think the, the incidence of, of tendon ruptures are, is going up to some degree. And, and there's, there's huge number of factors in here. So, so everything from some of the dietary things that people are doing, oh, I'm going to eat clean. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Yeah. All right. It's great. But there's other, there's other things that come, you know, that happen as a result. So I'm in California. We have tons of vegan and vegetarian athletes and they have a tendency to get more soft tissue injuries as well. So, so, and that's, that's one component of it. Another component of it is that we, in professional sports, most professional athletes, they don't say, oh, you know what, my, my Achilles or my patella is hurting. Because if you're, if you're kind of at a relatively low end, you know, you're just hanging on to your professional spot. Yep. You're not going to tell the coach, I've got, I've got a pain in my knee. I've got a pain <laughs> in my calf. Because that means you're, gonna, you're not going to practice. You're not going to play. Yep. Most, but most tendinopathies are things that you can play with. And so you can play with them. There's a little bit of pain there. So you might get an injection. Now you're not feeling the pain. Now you're going to do more than you should. So, so all of those things contributed to it. There's a lot of question right now as to whether corticosteroid injections are actually having a negative impact on, on the overall health of the tissues. So yes, it's going to decrease inflammation, but is that actually going to put the tendon at a greater risk of injury because as you're decreasing the inflammation, you're also decreasing other things that are happening within the tendon. There's a question there. And I know that a number of orthopedic surgeons just don't use corticosteroid injections anymore. Hmm. And then there's just, there's the problem that you get into when you have a history of injury. Oh, we've had a lot of Achilles injuries. So what we're going to do is 
I think it's really that we need to increase flexibility. So let's have our athletes sleep with these little these socks that allow us to pull the the toe back. And so there are these, you know, there are these socks that are designed to be able to dorsiflex your foot while you're sleeping, because the idea is that this will allow your tendons to lengthen and that's going to be good. And I know, I know of a number of NCAA athletes who are female gymnasts who have been, and there are coaches who use these, these devices and what we know is that female gymnasts in the NCAA have the highest incidence of Achilles tendon rupture. Really? What we're doing with a lot of these passive stretches is we're overriding some of the, the basic reflex arcs that our body uses to protect the tendon. So as a tendon stretches fast, we contract the muscle really quickly to protect it. Yeah. That's, the, that's what you always do in your doctor's office where he hits your patellar tendon and you kick, you kick your foot kick, out. Yeah, yeah. So that knee, the knee compression test is designed to stimulate the, the muscle spindles in the Golgi tendon organ, and you get an immediate contraction of the, of the muscle to protect the tendon, protect the muscle. When we're doing lots of passive stretching, you're now getting to the point where we're overriding that to some degree. So the, the reflex takes longer yeah. because, oh, no, we're used to being pulled in this direction. It's not a, it's not a danger. Don't fire. Right. And so by the time you, you hit the ground, by the time your muscle was supposed to contract before you, right with the contraction, you're supposed to get this co-contraction as you hit the ground. If you've overridden some of these things, you're not getting that contraction as early as you need to. The tendon is stretching too far and you're getting problems. So, so there's a number of potential things that are happening within the system that just come back to the fact that we don't know much about a tendon and how it works. Right. And because we don't know much about a tendon and how it works, we're very poor at treating initial feelings of, you know what, I've got some pain in my knee because most people think that means we're going to sit you out. They don't tell the docs and then we can't treat it because people don't say that we can treat tendinopathy. We can treat tendinopathy. We can actually repair it, but we have to know about it. So if you're telling me that you don't have a tendinopathy in your patella or your Achilles because, oh, yeah. I don't want to, I don't want to sit out. I, I want to keep playing. I can't do anything for you. But if, if we cre can create a culture where those people can come to the athletic trainers, the trainer says, okay, that's a manageable thing. We don't have to decrease your load. We'll have you do these specific exercises. Now what we're going to do is we're going to create an environment where we know who's feeling some sort of problem with their tendon. We begin to treat that. We don't have to sit them out and they will continue to come to us and tell us when they have those issues. I think that's really the big thing in professional sport is that people are so worried about their position on the team that they don't tell us. Yeah. Or there was one very famous case where they might've rushed somebody back a little bit fast and that ruptured uh, an Achilles. But, you know, there are, there are a whole bunch of different things that go into it, but those are some of them that we think are playing a role. No, I love it. So one thing that you mentioned and one thing that I'm always talking about with my athletes is the role of nutrition in recovery as well as performance. So if somebody comes to you and they've dealt with tendon issues in the past or they want to make sure they keep their tendons healthy going forward, what nutritional interventions are you giving them or are you educating them on that they can start using? Yeah, so the thing that we've been looking at is we've been looking at the role of dietary collagens together with vitamin C as a, as a way to potentially increase collagen synthesis within tissue. And so we've done some work 
And, and we've seen that, that when, you, when you give people about 15 grams of gelatin or hydrolyzed collagen, you see that there's an increase in collagen synthesis using markers that you would find in the blood, like, like um, the N-terminal peptide of collagen. So when you make collagen, you, you make it as this big, huge molecule, and then you cut off the two ends of it, and, and you release that into the, into the blood. And when, you, when we take a blood sample, we can measure how much of that is there. If we give you 15 grams of gelatin before you do some, some activities, say what we've used experimentally is jump rope, what you then find in the blood four hours later, 24 hours, is that you see that there is, a, there, there is an increase in, in those markers of collagen synthesis. So, so that's the first thing. And the interesting thing is we have a number of different things, most of them by accident, to show that, oh, you also need vitamin C. Because we we did things like we boiled the juice we were using, and then we didn't get any any response because well, there, when you boil a liquid that contains vitamin C, it it, it kills the vitamin C. Right. So so we learned from doing that that the vitamin C was necessary, at least in our subjects, because they're coming in overnight fasted. So what that means is that they've gone to bed. They've woken up. They haven't had anything to eat. And because every time we make collagen, it's, our mo- it's the most common protein in our body. Whenever we make collagen, we use a molecule of vitamin C and we consume it. So it's not that we can use it over and over again. It's that we have to have a different source of it because we're using it up. And so when you wake up early in the morning and you haven't eaten anything, you've basically depleted your system of vitamin C. So you don't really have that response. So if you're training early in the morning, you're going to want to have some sort of source of, uh, of vitamin C. And, you know, and we provide, we, we do it as, 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 you know, we, we give hydrolyzed collagen or gelatin in, in like orange juice or something that has a natural source of vitamin C because you don't need a lot of vitamin C. Right. So that's the primary thing that we've been looking at and other people have been looking at. So there is a little bit of a sense that, that some leucine-rich protein might have a benefit as well. We're still looking into that. But if you're going to combine the tendon and muscle component of it, what we would probably do is we would probably add a small amount of, of collagenous or dietary collagen to the leucine-rich protein that somebody would take. Okay. And so... The reason that we do that is because one of my colleagues in Holland, Luke Van Loon, has shown that if you just drink milk-based proteins, what happens is that you don't see a lot of glycine in the blood. And glycine is one-third of the amino acids in collagen. So what happens is you deplete the glycine really quickly. The leucine is still there, and that's what's going to signal to muscle for the muscle to get bigger and stronger. But the glycine component, which we need for our connective tissues, seems to not be as prevalent there. And so... Maybe adding something like dietary collagen, which is high in glycine, will give you an added benefit to that to to a leucine-rich milk-based protein. I gotcha. Okay, so I got one more question, and then we'll kind of start to wrap this up. But this just came to me. So let's say a high-profile athlete, and we're not going <clears> to <throat> name names because I never know who you've worked with or who you've consulted with. But let's say somebody comes in, they've ruptured an Achilles or they've ruptured a patellar tendon, they're on their way back. You're employing the nutritional interventions, your strength training. When it comes to strength training, one piece that I've heard of as well is that when it comes to like tendons and rebuilding tendons that you can actually do isometrics and that sort of thing multiple times per day. How would you set up something like that where the person's only goal is to get back to 100%? Time isn't really an issue. How would you set that up to get them back as quickly as possible? 
Yeah, sure. So, so that's work that we, we, we had shown that if it's a bone or a tendon injury or a cartilage injury, the cells within those tissues respond to very short periods of load with very long periods of rest. So you, about within five to 10 minutes of loading, the cells have already gotten all the signal they need. And then it takes about six to eight hours before they need before they can respond again. Yeah. So, so I can, you know, when we were doing this the first time when we had just discovered this and we were working with, I got a phone call from a friend of mine and she was, you know, she's about my age. She's a woman who ruptured her Achilles. And she, so she's coming back from a ruptured Achilles and she's, you know, she's dying to get back and, and run and, and hike and do all these things. And so we talk about it and we put together the, the program and the program is again, it's, it's relatively simple. So, so what we're doing is we're going to do from very early on, from almost two days in, after the surgeries, what we're going to do is we're going to go ahead and start doing isometric loads and we're going to do range of motion loading. So you're just going to do, you know, typical things would be like alphabets where you, where you just trace the capital letters with your, with your toes, or you just, slowly doing these isometric holds and the isometric holds are just to the point where you feel like, Oh, there's tension there. Right. I can feel that there's something. It's like a general overlies overall muscle soreness. Sure. And so, so we do that for about five or six minutes in the morning, maybe 10 minutes at maximum. And then you go on, you put on your boot and then you go about your day at lunchtime, about an hour before you're going to, to do anything, you'd take uh, 15 grams of gelatin and some vitamin C. So, and then an hour later, you would go back and you'd do your 10 minutes of act activation. So you do your, you do your, your alphabets, you do your isometric contractions. When we talk about isometric contractions, we talking about a 30 second isometric hold. Yeah. The reason we use 30 seconds is because that's when we get the greatest relaxation of the collagen. And all that means is that you get the most even tensional load across the tendon gotcha. and then put the boot back on go ahead go another six hours and right before bed an hour before bed you have your you have your collagen your your vitamin c you then an hour later right before bed you do your your 10 minutes of loading your your alphabets your isometric holds and you do that three times a day every day once you get back to the point where you're starting to do movements, you're starting to then start your training again, then what you're going to do is one of those sessions becomes longer and the other two sessions stay as protective sessions. Gotcha. And so as you progress, now you've got this one session becoming longer. That's going to be your cardiovascular session. That's going to increase your, your cardiovascular function. You've got one to two protective sessions that is specifically designed to improve the functionality of, of that tendon. And so, you know, this is, this is the program that I put together for her and I've done it for a lot of others, but it's easier to talk about her because no, there's no uh, proprietary <laughs> things associated with that. Yeah. And so what she found is that by, she was back to running completely by four months really? um, after an Achilles tendon rupture. Yeah. As That's a, awesome. as a woman in her, in her mid forties. And so, so you can get these types of recoveries when, the, all that happens as you change tissues is you change the load that you apply. So if you now have a bone, so if you have a shin splint or if you have a, a bone break in, 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 say, a tibial bone break, now what we're going to do is we're going to get you in. You're going to be in your boot. You're going to take your boot off, and we're going to get you into either an alter G or a pool, depending on how wealthy you are. Yes. And you're either going to be in the pool at the beginning. The first day you're in the pool, you're in the pool in the water up to your shoulders, 
and you do your movements, you jump a little bit, you do these things. For bones, it takes as little as 40 loads. So you're gonna jump 40 times. You're gonna start in deep water, and as you get as you get better, you're gonna go into shallower water. You do that two times, three times a day, and that's going to be a way that you can recover the bone really quickly. If you've got a history of bone injuries, all you're doing is you're doing one bone session, six to eight hours either before or after you're doing your main cardiovascular or training session. Yeah. And so that's a way that you can come back without any bone issues. And we've done that a, 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 with a number of different athletes over the years. So you can, and then if you're doing cartilage, again, it's the same type of thing. Now, instead of doing a, a jumping load, an impact force like you do for a bone or an isometric hold where you get that slow tension across the the tendon for cartilage what you need is you need compression and you need fluid flow Mm. because the signal for the cells is fluid flow so you compress and then you decompress so you take the load off yeah so if you and this is what we what we do for 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 back issues where people have um, disc issues is what we'll do is we'll we'll use an inversion table They'll invert for 20 seconds, 20 to 30 seconds. They'll come back up for 20 to 30 seconds. So basically what happens is you invert, the disc will expand. You go back to to regular, you know, you revert, and it's going to compress the disc again. And when you do that, it's going to squish fluid through the disc. And if you have already eaten your collagen or or vitamin C, that's going to now take that collagen and vitamin C rich or those amino acid rich. So the glycine and, and proline rich amino acid fluid is now going to get pumped through those cells. So the cells are going to get a stimulus that they have to adapt and they're going to get the nutrients that are the amino acids, the building blocks that they need to make the structures that they need to make. That is awesome. That's such cool stuff, man. Okay. Big question time, my friend. I ask everybody this that comes on the show. If you could alter the space-time continuum and give young Dr. Keith Barr one piece of advice about training and or life, what would it be? Um, As far as, as far as sports, it would be um, just play more. Yes. Because, you know, like a lot of people, I got out and I practiced a ton. So I could shoot no problem in an empty gym. <laughs> I, I could, you know, I was probably shooting about a thousand jump shots a day without a problem. And yeah, I could shoot really well with nobody out there. Yeah. And then in the game, I would, you know, because everything has to go faster when you're playing in a game. Yep. So, and so, and the reality is I see my daughter now as a young athlete, don't, don't play organized sports, go out and be creative and play non-organized sports, play pickup sport yes. because pickup sport, you try things that nobody else tries because it doesn't matter if it doesn't work. Right. All that happens is somebody lasts for a second, you get up and you go again. Right. But you that's, that's why the only sport that we're exceptional at in the United States is basketball because that's where pickup is still played. Yeah. In soccer, we're, yeah, we're technically very good, but we don't have any creativity. Yeah. You see that across the sports. Creativity only comes from playing games and not games not games that are controlled, but games that are completely open. Yes. And so so that's to me that's the most important thing for sporting for sporting excellence is to is to play in a non-structured way. Yeah. A sport because that's where you're going to learn creativity. You're going to learn to do things that nobody would have thought of because lo- you had to do it. 
I just love that because we're just at this age where everybody is in a rush to be in travel ball and have skills coaches. And like you said, those improv improvisational skills and the creativity that you pick up when you just play in a random game that it doesn't mean anything, right? But it allows you, right. it affords you time to be creative and to develop different skills that you won't get if you're playing in this pre-canned set system all the time. Exactly. Exactly. And that's not for any athlete. I would say that that's the key is to go out and have to create. Yeah. I love that, man. Okay. Last but not least, we've got our lightning round. So four fairly short questions, your answer can be as long or as short as you'd like. All right. Sure. Okay. Number one, you're a world renowned expert in your field. So what hobbies do you have when you're not working? So when I'm not working, I'm either with my family or I'm, I'm playing something. So it's always a little bit hard for the people at, at the university to realize it, but I still play intramural sports. Oh, so my awesome. laboratory, my laboratory goes out right now. We've got, we've got a soccer match tonight and we have basketball on Thursday. So we're doing one to two intramural sports a quarter. So I still go out and play sport as much as I can. And so basically anything, anything active is, is what I do when I'm not working. I love it, man. Okay, number two, what part of your current research are you most excited about? Yeah, so we've got some really, really cool stuff that we're looking at. Everything from figuring out the genomics of food. So what is it about a food that's actually good for your health? That's a big consortium here at UC Davis is doing this. We're, we're also trying to, you know, build lab-based meat. So can we culture <laughs> meat in a dish? But, you know, some of the most exciting things I think are, are some of the research we're doing with, with tendinopathy. Because what we're, what we're looking to do, we're looking to basically figure out every single gene that is expressed within the injured region of a tendon and a healthy tendon, but also in the regions around the, gene, around the injury. Yeah. And then what we're going to do is we're going to figure out what's the best loading strategy to get that scarred area to actually express the genes that we want. And so that's, that's a really big and really <laughs> kind of it. That's, that's really frontier research because it's, it's stuff that, that nobody's ever done any of the kind of spatial transcriptomic stuff that we're looking to do with it. And, and we're really looking to take our understanding of tendons to a whole nother level. Wow. I've never even heard of spatial. What was that, that word? Spatial transcriptomics. So basically, which genes are expressed where? That's crazy. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay. Number three, this is a little bit lighter question. What's the best and worst part of living in California? Yeah, so so I think the the best part of living in California is is the weather is outstanding, um, and you know it's a it's a good it's a good place there where you know it's a bit of a, a of an intellectual bubble because where I live in California it it's a lot like Europe in that everybody bikes everywhere. Yep. There's bikes all over the place. There's active people. My neighbor is 102 years old. She turns 103 in one month and in three days. Wow. So, so you get these people who are just, they age incredibly well because they're completely active and they can go out and do whatever they want. Yep. The worst part of living in California is because it's a wonderful place to live. There's, there's tons of people everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Luckily, not, not in our area so much. And then because of how climate is changing, we're getting a lot, we're getting hit with a lot of drought and a lot of fire. So, so that, that affects 
you know, our ability to get out and, and do our activities because if you're trying to go out and the air quality is quite bad, but we've, we've had a, a relatively good year this year. That's awesome. Okay. Last but not least, what's next for Keith Barr? What do you got going on? What are you excited about? Other than the spatial transcript omics, I think I said that. Yeah. What else? Yeah. So we got, we've got a lot of stuff. And so, so the nice thing is that we have a bunch of, a bunch of studies going on right now with ketogenic diet, because we had previously shown that that increases lifespan in, in rodents and we could maintain muscle function in old animals at the same level that they had as young animals. And so now we're trying to figure out, can we do an intermittent ketogenic diet and how long do we have to be on the diet? All of those things are, are really interesting. The other thing that we did with that is we've, we've done some studies that show that ketogenic diet is really good for brain function, especially as you age. And that's really where it's used clinically is with kids who have epilepsy. Hmm. So one of the things we've, we've thought is that maybe the ketogenic diet is having a good, func- uh, a good result on the brain, not because it do- directly affects the brain, but because it actually changes the muscle and the muscle changes its metabolism. And that allows us to remove neurotoxins. And so there's a, a specific neurotoxin called kyurenin, which when it gets to the brain, it becomes this thing called quinolytic acid, which when it gets into the brain, it can cause um, neurons to die. Mm. And so what happens is when you have lots of really well, good functioning mitochondria in your muscle, the muscle actually can help convert the kyurenin into something that can't get into the brain. And so okay. the way that we think that a ketogenic diet works is it improves the mitochondrial function within the muscles mitochondria those highly functional mitochondria can now convert kyurenin into something that can't get into the brain and that protects the brain from from damage huh. and then the other thing that we've got that's really exciting is we've we've developed this natural product that actually increases the amount of muscle growth we get so this is really cool because basically what we had done is we had done some studies using transgenic animals. And and we found that when we knocked out one protein, we could get about almost twice as much muscle growth from the same stimulus. Really? And so what we then did is we then did a big screen to see if there were any natural products that inhibited that protein. And we found a number of them. And then when we combined three of them together, we produced a product that basically allowed us in in a rodent model to get about well, to get a huge increase in muscle growth. So from the same exercise, normally you get about a 15% muscle hypertrophy and we were able to get it up around 65%. Oh my so it's, it's a really, it's a really big increase in, in, in the size of the muscle after, after exercise. So that one's really exciting because that one has the potential to actually improve, you know, get more people more out of their, out of their strength training. And when, do we have a timeline on that? Like, when can we? So all of that is that? in. So we're trying to finalize everything with that. So okay. so we had an initial patent on the initial discovery. The secondary patent is in now, and then it's been licensed. So we're we're looking to bring it. We're looking to bring it out. Not too long. That's awesome. And the last the last really interesting thing that we have is a study that we've been doing in women, because women are four times more likely to rupture their ACL than men. Sure. And so. We had discovered using some of our, our models that that what happens with high estrogen and high estrogen is happens right around when a woman would ovulate is that that high estrogen can decrease the stiffness of, of a ligament. And the way that it does it is by inhibiting a specific enzyme, which 
crosslinks the collagen. And so what we did is we studied a bunch of different things that could potentially crosslink collagen. And one of them is a, is a, a nutritional supplement called MSM. You find it in yeah. joint supplements. Yeah. And what we found is that when we, when we, in our model, when we gave high estrogen and MSM, we actually got increased stiffness instead of decreased stiffness. And so what we've now been doing is we've been doing a study in young women. We measure their knee laxity for two months at both menstruation and ovulation. Ovulation, they should have a little bit more movement, and that's what causes this higher rupture rate. And then we gave them MSN for three months, and we measured their knee laxity. And we haven't unblinded the study yet, but one of the groups, so all we know is group A, group B. We don't know which one is which, which is the placebo and which is the MSM. But one of the groups actually is decreasing knee laxity at, at ovulation. Wow. Um, so, so that one could be really big because it could mean that we could have, we could basically prevent one of the biggest catastrophic injuries in, in women's sports. Yeah. So, that's, so those things were, we're really excited about all of those. That is so cool because I can't tell you how many calls I've taken this year from parents where, you know, either their daughter ha- has, is coming off directly of an ACL or has had an ACL repair in the past. So right. how cool would that be to have a, a supplement and a tool that you can use to start increasing that stiffness to go along with the smart training and all that? That could be a total game changer. That is awesome. Yeah. So so those things are the things that we're, we're most excited about. And some of them, again, some of them are, are still early days. The MSM, we haven't unblinded it. So it could sure. be that you should be taking rice flour, but um, <laughs> which is Hopefully the placebo. Not. Right. But, Either way, yeah. one of them is good. Either yeah. rice flour or MSM is good, but we don't know which one yet. Okay. So so it's early days, but there's a lot of stuff there that, that's going to be, we think is going to be really cool. I love it. Well, Dr. Barr, you've been awesome to talk to today. Thank you so much for coming on. Where can my listeners find out more about you and all the great work that you're doing? Yeah, so so I'm on Twitter. I, I use the handle at Muscle Science. And so, so when new stuff comes out or when things that are interesting to me, I, I'll, I'll send out a message about it there. Yeah. And most, that's probably the easiest way for, for yeah. people to, to follow what we're doing. No, I love it. And I, uh, I didn't even know, I figured a guy like you might not do the social media thing, but I found you yesterday and started going through, uh, some of the things you'd put out. So there's some really good stuff there. So again, Dr. Barr, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. No worries. my friend that does it for this week's show with dr Barr. sincerely hope you enjoyed it like i told you up front it's a little bit more science heavy than some of the stuff that i put out there but i think if we want to continue to grow and evolve our field and our profession the more we know about anatomy about physiology about connective tissue like dr Barr is researching man it can really help us level up our game across the board so like i said i hope you enjoyed it if you did if there's somebody that you know could benefit from Dr. Barr's message from his work and learning more about what he's doing, please share it with him. doesn't matter how. Email, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever access you have and whatever platforms you have to share it would be greatly, greatly appreciated. So my friend, as always, thank you so much for your support. Love and appreciate you. And we'll be back soon with our next episode. Take care. <laughs>